0: Welcome to Asian Centuries, for regular updates and bonus material, subscribe for our newsletter at asiancenturiespod.substack.com or you can listen on your favourite podcast app or find episodes on YouTube. Just search Asian Centuries Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: They may believe that if you're kind to drug traffickers, you get a better society. In America, they are changing their minds and they are sending people back to, the, to death row. In Singapore, before you land, their hostess or the steward will announce that there are very heavy penalties if you are found, with more than a stated number of grams of certain prohibited drugs. And if you still come in with a few kilos of them, which will destroy hundreds, thousands of families, One death is too kind.
0: That voice you heard was of Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore's founding father, his prime minister from independence until 1990, the father of a current prime minister. And it was his justification for the topic of today's episode, the death penalty. Hanging was a form of punishment during British colonial times and Singapore kept it on the books once it became independent in 1965. As we'll hear today, during the 1970s as part of a global war on drugs, Singapore controversially made drug trafficking a capital offence. Singapore isn't unique, in maintaining the death penalty, but it is some of the strictest laws on drug trafficking. In recent years, dozens of people have been executed for bringing into the city-state what some might think were tiny amounts of cannabis or cocaine or heroin. In early August, it carried out three hangings in the space of just one week. More than a dozen people have been killed since the country resumed hangings in March last year after observing a two-year hiatus during the COVID-19 pandemic. There are currently 50 people on death row in Singapore, only three of whom were convicted of murder. To talk me through the history of capital punishment in Singapore and how it evolved in the 20th century, my guest is Kirsten Han, an independent journalist and one of Singapore's most famous campaigners for the abolition of capital punishment. She's also one of the finest voices in Singaporean society and culture. We discuss the use of capital punishment in colonial times, the focus on drugs after independence, what Singaporeans actually think about state executions, and whether the tide of history in Asia is turning against capital punishment. Without further ado, I give you Kirsten Han. Kirsten, thanks for being a guest to talk about state-enforced executions in Singapore. First of all, how did you get into campaigning around the issue of capital punishment?
1: Yeah, so for me, it was kind of by accident because I wasn't I wasn't looking to get involved and I actually didn't know very much about the death penalty and how it was used in Singapore. I knew that it was used in cases of murder and uh, drug trafficking, Um but I didn't know any of the details. So I was quite happy to kind of leave it to the government really before then. 2010, when I joined the Online Citizen, which was an independent news website, they were working on a campaign against the mandatory death penalty. So what the mandatory death penalty means is that if someone is found guilty of an offence, the judge is only allowed to give them a death sentence. They are not allowed to um consider mitigating circumstances or anything like that so the online citizen was running a campaign against that arguing that judges should have the discretion to look at all aspects of the case and campaign to save the life of young Kong, who was a young malaysian from sabah who was on death row in singapore for drug trafficking and you know Kong had a very difficult childhood and very little education came from a very poor family that had like history of abuse and so by all accounts he was illiterate at the time that he was arrested and and then you know in prison had taught himself to read and to write and was learning Malay and English and you know had this very compelling journey of reform and growth and so there was you know the sense that a kid like that should have a second chance rather be, than be sentenced to death. So those two campaigns were running at the same time. They were very intertwined, actually, because um, Kong's lawyer, M. Ravi, was mounting a cha- constitutional challenge against the mandatory death penalty in that year, in 2010. So following these cases, and that's how it got started.
0: So Singapore's use of a death penalty is back in the news after several people were executed uh, in August, including, I believe, the first execution of a woman for two decades. Uh, there seems to have been a spike in executions since the COVID-19 pandemic, perhaps 16 hangings, and Singapore still uses the hangman's noose since uh, March 2020. Were August's executions big news in Singapore? What was the response?
1: So the executions weren't really big news. Like The, the recent ones, yeah, I, they weren't actually that big news. I think it might have actually been... Bigger news in the international media than in the local media. At least, you know, I've definitely heard and got requests for comment and, and things more from like foreign correspondents than local ones. I it's it's difficult because um this is all also tied in with issues of media freedom in Singapore, right? And the mainstream media um tends to follow the government agenda and the government line, and the death penalty is now also seen as Politically sensitive. So, the mainstream media does not report on the death penalty unless the government says something. So, they don't report on upcoming executions. They don't report on um, executions that have taken place unless the government has put out some sort of statement. Um, Then they pick up the government statement. So, if the government doesn't say much, then they don't say much either. So, it doesn't actually get reported. So, it's one of these ongoing contradictions that people keep asking me about. That, you know, if the government claims that the death penalty exists to be a deterrence, then why is it so hush hush in Singapore? But that, that is the case that like you don't read very much about the death penalty in the local mainstream media.
0: And obviously, Singapore inherited the death penalty from the British Empire. What do we know about the use of capital punishment in Singapore during the colonial era? And how did this change once Singapore became independent? I assume almost none of the deaths in colonial times were because of drug-related issues.
1: Yeah, we, you know, in the colonial era, we didn't have the death penalty for drug-related issues. I mean, the British themselves were very heavily um, involved in the opium trade and profiting off it, so they wouldn't be hanging drug traffickers because they were drug traffickers. Um, Yeah, so the death penalty existed under British colonial rule and there were some you know high profile cases of use of the death penalty. So one very high profile case was um during World War I in 1915, the 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 right wing of the 5th Light Infantry of the Indian Army that was stationed in Singapore. They they mutinied so there was a revolt. Um, They killed British officers and and resident British residents and some local civilians were also killed, I think. And so that became a very big case, and it ended in mass execution, right? So I think about 47 mutineers were executed. And you know, some of these executions were done in public. So like large crowds of thousands of people um came to went to watch it. Uh and so that was kind of one example of how they used the death penalty, right, to to enforce obedience to the crown and to the colonial authorities, um, to deal with um, mutiny. Another very high profile case, which was much more recent, was in like nineteen sixty three. There was a prison island called um Pulau Senang. So Pulau Senang is an island, and they they established this kind of experimental offshore prison island. Uh where the prisoners were able to like roam around the island freely and do manual labor but there was unhappiness about the administration of the of the island i think and you know there were some inmates who were really upset and then there was um and eventually like riots broke out and and they attacked the prison guards and they they killed um they killed the administrators. And so it was this huge case that again also ended in multiple um multiple death sentences. And I think, you know, they they executed quite a few. I think they ex- yeah, so they executed about 18 of these prisoners um by hanging. So these were the sorts of cases that you would see, like you know, violent murder and things like that. So it wasn't until Singapore was independent, that we started bringing in the death penalty for drug offences. So in 1973, when we brought in the Misuse of Drugs Act, it was seen as a way to deal with um, basically widespread um, drug use. So so they they said that, oh, you know, we need harsher laws than what we currently have to do with drug use. You know, it would be very difficult for and, and very dangerous for Singapore if, like, young people started to use drugs. Um, but in 1973, they did say that they were not going as far as bringing in the death penalty for drug offences. So, like, in 1973, they were like, oh, yes, you know, we will punish them with... Um, prison terms and fines but you know the death penalty is still a little bit of a step too far we're not going that far yet and then they completely changed their tune two years later and said we're going to bring in the mandatory death penalty um, for drug related offences so basically it was all wrapped in this um, deterrent narrative so the idea that if the punishment is really harsh it will deter people from using drugs or selling drugs and it was very much built on this idea that because of singapore's geographical position which is you know very good for trade um legal trade and economic growth it's also good for illicit trade and so because of where singapore is we need to be very very strict and we need to make sure that you know young people don't fall under the influence of drugs um there was this sense that oh, uh, young people who take drugs will no longer become productive digits for the economy, and then there was also this like narrative in parliament that oh, um, it's also a national security issue because and the Vietnam War, you know, they they got South Vietnamese soldiers hooked on drugs and then they can't fight well, so it's bad for security. So there were all these very kind of moral panics sort or of, sort of narratives going around about drug use, and how, you know, it was a purely like criminal lens. So we need to punish people so that they won't use drugs, so that they won't trade in drugs.
0: That's interesting, not just the moral panic, but also the idea of drugs related to Singapore's modernization towards the capitalist growth of Singapore. And in the 1970s, they also did away with jury trials, I believe.
1: Yes. Um. So, yeah, there was this sense that you know, we didn't need jury trials, that that juries were probably also a bit less, like, willing to sentence people to death. Um, and so, like, we'll just stay with judges. So right now, today, we have, um, we don't have jury trials in Singapore anymore. Uh, if you are tried for a capital offence, in the first instance, it's just a single judge. And then at your appeal, there are three judges. Um, and And that's about it yeah but i think it's also worth noting that a lot of this rhetoric about deterrence and drugs was not specific to singapore right it was also very much a narrative of the time when there was this huge um kind of thought that you know punishment and policing is the answer this whole war on drugs narrative that came from the us as well um whereupon the us then pushed you know, international bodies like the UN to come up with treaties and conventions that enforce drug prohibition in in many, many parts of the world. So, so it was kind of like, while different countries had their different laws to deal with drugs, it was very much also uh, the sort of mood of the time that this is the sort of war on drugs, this sort of prohibition and punishment is the way to go. And when Singapore brought in the mandatory death penalty for drug offences in 1975, the the minister at the time specifically referenced Iranian drug laws as something that we were learning from. So it was very much like a global phenomenon as well.
0: Mm. And the laws were again amended in 1989, the year before Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew resigned, to extend mandatory death sentence for even more kind of draconian uh, laws on possessions. So I believe it was more than thirty grams of cocaine and two hundred grams of cannabis resin. um What was the rationale behind behind that? To extending this war on drugs.
1: Yeah, so I think throughout history, what we are seeing in Singapore and and in other countries as well is that, this narrative. So, like the key theme of the narrative is deterrence, and then the deterrence didn't work, and then more deterrence. So, uh when we extended, so at first the death penalty applied to heroin and then they extended it to include more types of substances, including cannabis. Um, And it, when they talked about it in parliament in 1989, it was really that, oh, you know, the global drug trade is continuing to grow. You know, the, the situation is still deteriorating. There's still a lot of drug use. There's a lot of, which, you know, really suggests that all this, war on drugs for the past 10 years had not worked but they're like it's getting worse so we are going to more deterrence like if the first deterrent didn't work we will do some more deterrence and there was this concern that um, people might turn to opium because it might turn out to be cheaper than heroin and also this belief that cannabis is a gateway drug to other types of drug use so then they said, okay, you know, then, you know, this zero tolerance has to be expanded. Um, and, you know, we were expanded to cover opium and to cover cannabis and to cover cocaine because, you know, cocaine had not at that point been super popular in Singapore, but they were worried that it was coming um, because they were reading about cocaine use in the US and everything, and they were worried that it was coming to Singapore. So they they expanded the use of the death penalty in the hopes of deterring this use. And it's really interesting to see this narrative in history, right? In in 1989, which was just one year after I was born. And then this year we saw again that, you know, they amended the Misuse of Drugs Act again to include, you know, psychoactive substances and stuff. They didn't expand the death penalty to cover psychoactive substances, but they expanded the Misuse of Drugs Act to bring in, criminal penalties for more classes of use of psychoactive substances and it was very similar right this whole like oh um you know the situation is getting worse drug syndicates are still dealing in in huge amounts of drugs and and therefore more deterrence so it's it's just this ongoing narrative that's gone throughout history
0: and and there's also the contradiction in in 2012 i believe the government uh, amended the law to remove mandatory death penalty so uh, it can be commuted to life imprisonment at the court's discretion and there was some optimism at the time that this would be the government moving away from low-level couriers the mules to more focusing on the higher end of organized crime the people actually at the top I mean has that happened
1: yeah so at the time you know there was this hope that it was the end of the mandatory death penalty but actually it wasn't you know it you know by saying that oh you know they've amended the laws and you know judges are allowed to take certain criteria into consideration. It made it sound like it was an end to the mandatory death penalty, but actually what happened is that certain narrow carve outs were introduced and these were very specific and narrowly defined carve outs. And if you did not satisfy these carve outs, it was still mandatory death penalty as a default. So, you know, today we are still seeing the use of the mandatory death penalty in Singapore. So these amendments are, um, if you can show abnormality of mind that impaired your mental responsibility at the time that the act was committed, um, then you also have to show that you were solely a courier. So your role in the drug trade was solely just transporting from A to B or you could get a certificate of substantive assistance, which is that the prosecution has to certify that you were helpful to law enforcement in disrupting drug trafficking activities. So you have to fulfill um, at least two of these, right? So no matter what, you have to just be a courier, and then you either have to get the certificate or show that you have abnormality of mind. And we've seen that these criteria, while they have allowed some people to avoid um, being hanged um, it's still extremely narrow criteria and a lot of people are still getting sentenced to death who are not you know higher up in organized crimes a lot of most of the people we're seeing on death row are still low level you know courier is very fairly, fairly low level so the definition is extremely narrow so for example um, a courier is defined as only transporting from a to b right but if say you got a friend to come in and help you collect the money as well as you're delivering, then you're no longer a courier because you've recruited. And then they, that assumes that you are higher up. But that's not actually how the drugs syndicates kids necessarily work in reality, right? Like So sometimes things are a little bit more fluid. You might have recruited a friend, but it doesn't mean that you're higher up or that you have information. And so it's, it's very difficult. There's not enough transparency and independent oversight into how the certificate of substantive assistance is issued. So, um, you know, we have cases where two co-accused are caught together, both claim to have given information, but only one gets the certificate and not the other. Um, All the police have to say is, yes, it was helpful or no, it was not helpful, but there's no independent way to check on on what they're claiming. Uh, And we've recently seen from legal cases that, the threshold is that the information has to be actually useful. So we have a case on death row at the moment where it was accepted that he cooperated with the police and gave information, but they said that it was not useful because they already knew what he told them. And so he's on death row because he was not useful. And that's not fair because it's not in his power what you knew or already knew. He can only tell you what he knows. And so um, what we are seeing is that the criteria is not about sparing people's lives it's about how how useful you are to law enforcement goals and also then I feel like there's this whole contradiction right like if somebody is merely a courier and extremely low level in the syndicate how much useful information do they have um then we have like this whole legal nightmare that like When people are arrested in Singapore and questioned for offences, they do not have lawyers with them. So then you end up in a situation where these people are arrested and possibly could get charged with a capital offence. So they're probably very stressed and very scared. And they have to decide if they want to keep quiet and not say anything that might incriminate them, like just shut up and don't say anything that could be used against you in court. But if you do that, you lose your opportunity to get this certificate of cooperation. And then if you're found guilty, you hang for sure. Or do you want to cooperate and give all this information? But without like legal advice at the time, it's very difficult to give all this information without also incriminating yourself. So then it's a very difficult and stressful legal position to be in for somebody who has just been arrested and does not have legal advice. So we've seen, um, you know, while while it is that while some people have been saved by these amendments, we've seen a lot of problems um come out of it as well.
0: And it's often said in liberal democracies in the West that if people had to vote, they would bring back the death penalty. Um I mean, there have been surveys. Mm-hmm of Singaporeans, and I believe some find that most people generally accept the death penalty, although a recent one said that most people aren't aware of it, or perhaps really don't care about the issue. What's your sense of the mood of most Singaporeans on capital punishment?
1: Yeah, I think there is generally like a sort of theoretical acceptance of the death penalty. So most surveys do find majority support for the death penalty but if you probe a bit deeper then you will find that sometimes that this so-called support for the death penalty is extremely theoretical it's like a, if there was a terrorist like if we caught Osama bin Laden and he, you know he's a terrorist then I support the death penalty but it's not matched to who is actually getting the death penalty on in in Singapore so it's a very sort of theoretical if there was a serial killer if there was a child killer then yes I would support the death penalty sort of thing but it doesn't match the reality of how it's actually being used in Singapore or people are actually supporting whatever status quo is so I've met a lot of people who say that they support the death penalty because they feel like it's necessary for law and order in Singapore and then I asked, but if the government were to abolish the death penalty, how would you feel about that? And then they would be, oh, that's okay too, because I'm sure the government has its reasons. So actually, they're just supporting whatever status quo is because it seems to be working for them. They're not actually very wedded to the death penalty as an issue. So I think that's definitely a lot, you know, like people who don't know very much about it and are thinking very theoretically, or people who don't really care about it and are like, oh, I'll just go with whatever the government decides because I'm sure they've done their research. Um, so I think we do see generally widespread support or at least claims of support, but when you probe deeper, it's it's a much more complicated picture. And, you know, there was this survey that was done by the National University of Singapore um in 2016 and they published their working paper in 2018 and they found that actually while there was Generally, if you ask very generally, there was over seventy percent support for the death penalty. If you got more specific, then the support would drop. So they asked, um, do you support the mandatory death penalty for drug trafficking? And the support for that was actually under fifty percent, which you know, as a as an abolitionist activist, I find that like really interesting, right? So actually. The public support for the mandatory death penalty for drug offenses is less than half. And that is actually the most common use case of the death penalty in Singapore. So then for me, I see this sort of opening to try to do public education to say, like, hey, you know, the things that that you assume about the death penalty in Singapore are not true. And I think we've done a lot of that. In recent years especially because the executions have got a bit more attention on social media now there's a bit more awareness and there's a lot more coordinated efforts of um, outreach especially among younger Singaporeans so i think the mood has shifted over the past 10 years
0: and the, the tide of history also appears to be changing across southeast asia in april the malaysian government removed mandatory death penalty for 12 offenses indonesia Its new criminal code has introduced also the possibility of commuting uh, death sentences to uh, imprisonment. The Thai government hasn't executed anyone since 2018. And although Vietnam still has capital punishment on its books, it uses it relatively sparingly. So there appears to be something of a shift in Southeast Asia. Do you foresee a time when Singapore scraps the death penalty altogether? And what would cause the government to do that?
1: But yeah, so it does seem like you know regionally there's at least some thinking about potentially moving away. So Malaysia is clearly moving away, Indonesia is mulling it over, other countries are using it less. Um, unfortunately, I don't see that stop, stopping the Singapore government anytime soon. In fact, what we've seen over the past year is the Singapore government doubling down on the death penalty and insisting that it needs to be um, used for law and order for security. Um, In fact, they point at other countries, like they point at Thailand's legalization of cannabis to say that these moves in Southeast Asia are making our drug enforcement more difficult. Therefore, we must double down. So I think for the Singapore government, the death penalty has become a very key issue that's tied up with their political power and egos and everything, so they are holding on to it quite tightly. um, And I think so far they are also able to do that because there is domestic support or at least domestic acceptance of the death penalty. So when they are criticised by the UN or by the EU or by you know Richard Branson or Virgin and all that, they can say we are not going to let foreign foreigners tell us what to do, and that jumps up that sort of nationalist pride, right? So they are not getting any political repercussions locally. I think they would think much harder if they were getting political repercussions locally, or if the condemnation from um, like, from international groups. Was also then felt economically, right? So, like, it's one thing for, say, the EU to say we condemn the death penalty. It's another thing for the EU to say we will not sign trade deals unless you abolish the death penalty. So, I think right now that's not happening, right? So, like, we are getting condemnation internationally, but everybody still wants to do business with Singapore. So, of course, then, you know, in the end, it's the money that talks. And also, then uh, locally, they're not getting a cost to these executions. So I think it would take a lot of um, domestic awareness of the death penalty and opposition to the death penalty to really push the government, um, to not just push actually the ruling party, to even push the opposition parties to take a stand. Because right now a lot of opposition parties would rather not deal with this issue because they're seeing it as a it's a political hot potato from which very little is to be gained. So they there's no cost to not taking a stand, um, whereas they feel like there might be a cost to being abolitionist. So, for for us as activists, we are putting a lot of energy into working with Singaporeans and educating Singaporeans to kind of create this sort of domestic pressure on all political parties, and especially the ruling party to kind of change and get rid of the death penalty but I think it would take a very long time at the rate that we are going.
0: Well thank you very much for joining me today Kirsten that was very interesting perhaps you can um, tell our listeners about some of the campaigns you organize and, and also some of your about some of your work you do as a journalist.
1: Yeah so I'm uh, I'm an independent journalist and um, I run my own newsletter called We the Citizens where I talk about Singapore's news and politics from a human rights perspective. Uh, I'm also a member of the Transformative Justice Collective. So we are an abolitionist group that works across a range of issues related to criminal punishment in Singapore. So the death penalty is possibly our most high-profile work at the moment, but we also do work on drug policy, prison conditions and policing, and transformative justice facilitation So we put in a lot of energy into outreach and community organising with um, Singaporeans and people who come into conflict with the law to try to create more awareness and more questioning um, and to get Singaporeans to imagine, you know, a different sort of society that wasn't so organised by punishment and deterrence. Um, So we've done a lot of work on campaigning for specific death row prisoners in supporting their families but also um, a lot of uh, outreach like door knocking and panel discussions film screenings just to get people to understand a little bit more about the system that we have in Singapore today.
0: Well I I wish you all the best with that and and thanks again for coming on Asian Centuries.
1: Okay thank you for having me. (laughs)
0: Thanks for listening to Asian Centuries. For more information, go to asiancenturiespod.substack.com and to see videos of episodes, search Asian Centuries on YouTube. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. And if you can, please leave a review and subscribe wherever you find this podcast. See you next time.